sense. But also, in another sense, like, when you're answering a multiple choice question and you have no idea, like, I've probably answered math questions like that before. Like, I've been like, I like that number better. It's prettier. <laughs> so let me pick it. Welcome to All My Friends Are English Majors, the podcast where I, a business major, make my friends, almost all English majors, read popular fiction with me. Uh, I have my first ever returning guest this month. Jess is coming back, and we're reading something deeply different than Sally Rooney. We're reading <laughs> the <laughs> we're reading the Court of Thorns and Roses books by Sarah J. Moss. So it's going to be very fun because Jess was the sad white woman fiction expert, but I am the smutty fantasy expert. So we're <laughs> going to have a very different experience, I think. That is so true. I I had a very um a very interesting experience reading these books because I <laughs> at the moment am engaged in really like I'm like really walking through the trenches of two different books. One of them is these books, the Akatar series, which is how many pages is it in total? Probably like 2000. Yeah. I would say that like all five Akatar books are worth in density and brain power, maybe like a third of War and Peace. <laughs> Yes, but pages-wise, they're equal, which is what I was about to say, that I am endeavoring to read War and Peace and, like, an anthology of Russian literature at the same time that I'm <laughs> reading um, Akatar, which is just a very odd experience. They really are not written, like, it's, it's as though they're two different art forms. Like, they're not even the same thing. They're not yeah. written for the same people or like to for the same purposes or anything. And so I'm really having a, a kind of funny time. I was trying to read. I had both books. I had um, A Court of Thorns and Roses and War and Peace with me when I watched my niece yesterday. And she was screaming. She would not stop crying. And I was like, I'm just going to read War and Peace to her. I'm just going to read War and Peace. <laughs> and I started. And she hated it, but she kind of liked Akatar, so <laughs> <laughs> it did help her to calm down. Jess's niece is like two months old, so yes, she's <laughs> she's very little. Yes, she. I think mostly just liked that I could bounce her on an exercise ball while reading the smaller book. Like <laughs> War and Peace is just such a brick that I like could not. I did not have as much freedom of movement. So I think that it had more to do with the, like, the bounce ratio than it did with her, like, taste in literature. <laughs> yeah, I used to babysit a lot and, um, and like, work in Sunday school a lot. And I remember very distinctly the bounce and also the butt pat. There are some babies mm -hmm. who must be getting the butt pat at all times or they're like, <laughs> hey, true. like, I don't know if you know this, but... I'll scream. Yeah. I will. And they really yeah. can. 
when I can. I feel like you're gonna vastly outpace Sam on War and Peace just because I feel like, are you trying to get it done before the school year starts? Like, are you that dug in on it? No, well, I kind of, like, like I said, I'm having to really, like, divide my brain power between <laughs> that and this. And so it it is lending itself to, like, kind of slow going just because sometimes I'll be like, okay, well, am I in the mood to, like, contemplate the immensity of the human experience? Or am I in the mood to hate read, like, <laughs> first-person narration of this, like, completely illogical, magical world and da 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 And usually I do pick the second one because <laughs> Tolstoy can really... I don't know. Like, it's it's nice. Like, it's a good experience. You really, really feel like a human being in a good way. But also, it can be kind of, like, taxing. And so, it makes me understand why people like reading fantasy like this, like, for the yeah. escape value, which has never really been my, like, style as a reader. And so, mm -hmm. I think in some ways it puts me a little more in the headspace to enjoy this. Not saying that I really enjoyed it. I still was quite a, <laughs> quite a hater, but I didn't like grit my teeth through it as much as I was expecting to. So, so thank I will you, Tolstoy. say this book in comparison to other Sarah J Moss works, she, I think I have like read an article or a quotation from her where she was essentially being like, this is the first time I've tried, like, a rewritten fairy tale. Like, the Throne of Glass books are, like, fully, fully from her own mind. And they are, at the beginning, more teen and then move into... Apparently, there's a there's a book genre called New Adult, which is when mm -hmm. they're... It's, like, a little bit smutty, but not, like... You're not, like, holy shit. This is just porn. Right. Um, and so, and that series kind of moves into new adult, but it is like all from her own mind. She's really telling like an interesting in-depth story and doing a lot of world building and the world building like continues through the books, although it's a little clunky. Um, whereas this one, she kind of is like, okay, I'm going to rewrite a fairy tale. And the issue is she's kind of like, well, what if I rewrote like six fairy tales? Yeah. Into one book. And it's mostly Beauty and the Beast, but let's sprinkle in a little Cinderella. And let's sprinkle in a little bit something else. Like, it's too, it's too much. I feel like every book, every fantasy book, like, asks some sort of question. Like, the way that they sort of build their world is, like, it begins with a question. It's like, what if blank was blank? So, like, in Game of Thrones, it's like, what if War of the Roses, but zombies? And um, one of my favorite fantasy series, which is um, The Name of the Wind, is like, what if a wizard was poor and had to get money? <laughs> and this one is like, what if Belle from Beauty and the Beast was Katniss Everdeen and couldn't read. <laughs> and I just, so it like combines so many different things. It's like, it's mostly Beauty and the Beast, but then she also is a huntress with a bow and arrow and a, 
a cold glare that she turns on everyone who's not her sisters and father in their poor village. And, like, that just is giving very much Hunger Games, the first part of it is. And then Mm -hmm. there's also, like, a, a series of tests that puts you in mind of, like, a bunch of the, like, troll stories, but also the myth of Psyche and Eros that I teach to my students is, like, exactly the last third of the book is Psyche and Eros, exactly. So she's really drawing on a lot of different things and putting them all together, which is not a bad thing. That's, like, how stories work. But it is very obvious, I think, because she doesn't do enough world building around it or, like, take her questions to, like, the furthest conclusions. And so you end up being able to, like, see the scaffolding behind the story a little bit too much, I feel like. I think she is a much better writer when she is writing her own stories. Like, I'm really Mm. interested to see what you think of books two and three because she kind of exits the fairy tale framework entirely and then is just writing, like, furthering all of the little cookie crumbs she left out towards the end of this book into multiple different stories of, like, nice. oh, an actual different world, as opposed to kind of the the Beauty and the Beast manor house, like, yeah. story that we are used to seeing and have seen in many different forms. Right. Um, hmm. I guess we Good should read the back of the book. Yeah. Um, do you have it? I do not have it. I'm borrowing May's copy, and she doesn't have a book jacket. Do you have it? Okay. So it says, from number one New York Times bestselling author Sarah J. Moss comes a seductive, breathtaking book that blends romance, adventure, and fairy lore into an unforgettable read. When 19-year-old Huntress Feyre kills a wolf in the woods, a terrifying creature arrives to demand retribution. Dragged to a treacherous, magical land she knows about only from legends, Feyre, is it Feyre? Is that how you say it? I I think it's Feyre, but my brain just goes, fair. <laughs> over and Feyre, over again. Or fair. Discovers that her captor is not truly a beast, but one of the lethal, immortal fairies who once ruled her world. At least he's not a beast all the time. As, he, as she adapts to her new home, her feelings for the fairy Tamlin transform from icy hostility into a fiery passion that burns through every lie she's been told about the beautiful, dangerous world of the fae. But something is not right in the fairy lands. An ancient, wicked shadow is growing, and Feyre must find a way to stop it or doom Tamlin and his world forever. And then the, the blurbs on the back of my book are from the USA Today review. Passionate, violent, sexy, and daring. From Kirkus Review, hits the spot for fans of dark, lush, sexy fantasy. And then the book, book list one just says fast-paced and explosively action-packed. So my qualm with the back of the book is that I think she spends a lot of the book trying not to let on that there is going to be a third act. Mm-hmm. And then the back of the book is like, and in the third act, <laughs> there will be an ancient evil. Like, yes. if you're going to try to really, like, weave weave this plot that doesn't let people on to what's happening, 
why are you telling people something's gonna happen? Mm-hmm. Yeah, she does. Well, an ancient wicked shadow, that's interesting, because the plot twist is kind of, like, revealing what it is, and, like, if she had said it in a different way. Are we spoiling things? Can we get yes. that out of the way? What oh, are- yeah. Yes? Everyone, spoiler warning, if you want to read this book, don't be listening to this podcast, because we're going to talk about everything. <laughs> yeah, I feel like if I speak, like, I don't know how to talk about this, it without revealing because there's a lot of like i feel like at the end of each act there's almost like a plot twist so you can't even talk about like most of the book without revealing certain parts of the so when it says an ancient wicked shadow at the like the first like two-thirds of the book or the first half i don't know she thinks that there's just like this impersonal blight like a sickness or like a a curse that's spreading throughout the fairy lands. But then she finds out that it's actually one specific person, Amarantha, who is a villain and she's like cursed all the high Lords of this place. So for the beginning, the ancient wicked shadow seems to be this like impersonal force, but then it turns out that it's actually one woman who I, also loves Tamblin. <laughs> <laughs> I think that it's interesting, and we can talk about Amarantha more later. I guess we should maybe... God, I think I can probably do, like, a four-minute summary. Yeah. Okay. Do that. So I'm going to set a timer, an actual timer. That's probably a good call, because if we don't set a timer, then there's just so many different wormholes to go down, and suddenly we're in a 35-minute summary. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, let me know when I'm I'm supposed to go. Okay. Go. Okay, so Farah is a human girl, and she is a hunter because her family has fallen on ill fortune, and she kills this wolf in the woods... That was really big, and she skins it, and she sells it so that her family has money for food. And then this giant monster, this fae monster, shows spelled F-A-E, fae monster, shows up at her house and is like, due to the treaty because of an ancient war that we had between the humans and the fairies, you have to come with me a life for a life. And because the humans believe that fairies can't lie, fair is like, Fine. I'm going to say her name wrong the whole time, just so everyone knows. Okay. I'm just going to call her there. Um, is, like, must go with him. So she goes with him, finds out he's the High Lord of the Spring Court, and does a little bit of world building. So there's seven High Lords of Prithian. I'm not going to name them all. Um, and he's the Lord of the Spring Court, and he has a mask stuck to his face. And he can turn into a big monster. And it turns out everyone in his court has masks stuck to their faces. And Fair is like, these weirdos, they just have a weird fashion sense and doesn't ask a lot of questions. And then she asks more questions and asks more f- questions and then, like, comes to, like, fall in love with the Spring Court and fall in love with Tamlin, who is the High Lord of the Spring Court. And then, in Beauty and the Beast fashion, she says, I miss my family, and he sends her a home right at the end of the tenure of his curse. But she does not know that he's cursed. So she goes home and then, like, in her bones is basically, like, something's wrong. 
and I have to go back. And she goes back and she finds that the court is destroyed. And the her favorite servant survived, thank God, and stayed to tell her what had <laughs> happened. And is like, so we couldn't tell you about this curse, but now that the curse has, like, ended and Tamlin didn't beat it, like, you must, well, not really, he had to go under the mountain to what she thought was originally, like, a blight, like a, like a curse gone wrong, like a spell that got too big. But it turns out that it's this woman who worked for an evil king, and then she came over and she was like, no, 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 me and the evil king, we're on the outs. And then, like, wormed her way into being friends with all seven High Lords, invited them all to a masquerade party, and then cursed them all. Somehow took control of all seven of the most powerful men in Prithian. Sure. Um, <laughs> and then Tamlin got to keep his court because he, like, didn't love her, but she wanted him to love her. So he had a chance to, like, make a nasty human fall in love with him. And if he could do that and they both loved each other, the curse would break. And then Fair goes under the mountain and then she gets caught by Amarantha, which is the name of this woman. And Amarantha is like, fine, if you pass these tasks, like, you and Tamlin can, like, be together and I'll lift the curse. And then Fair fights a giant worm and wins. <laughs> and then um, makes a deal with Rysand. Rysand? Um, and then he heals her, but then she's indebted to him. And then he helps her with the second task. And then the third task is crazy. She just has to kill two fae in cold blood. And then the third fairy's, like, hood is removed. And it's Tamlin, the man she loves, who she's doing all of this for. And she takes the dagger. And then she remembers all these little conversations she's heard about Tamlin's heart of stone. So when she goes to stab him in the heart, like she has to, to free all of Prithian from Amarantha's curse, his his heart is stone and he doesn't die. And then Amarantha is like, well, I never said when I was going to lift the curse, so I'm not going to do it. But there's the, been this riddle the whole time that if she solves the riddle, then Amarantha has to do it because they've fulfilled their bargain. The answer to the riddle is love. Spoiler. And... <laughs> um, like, she beats Amarantha, and then Amarantha is basically like, well, I never said I wouldn't kill you, bitch. And because Amarantha is fey, and fair is still human, um, like, she kills fair. She, like, literally snaps her spine in half. It's kind of nuts. Mm. And then all seven High Lords of Prithian have been freed from their curse. Tamlin kills Amarantha, and then all seven of them give her a little pocket of magic, and she becomes high fey. Which is what it means when you look like a Lord of the Rings elf. Instead of, like, some <laughs> other type of lesser fae. And that's kind of how the book ends. They go back to the spring court. She still has her deal with Rysand, which is, like, in the back of your mind. And then she goes back to the spring court. And there's sex in the book also. But, like, that's the whole plot. Yeah. How'd I do? So, that was five minutes and 15 seconds. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> but... I think you did a good job, and there were some things that I was like, and she didn't talk about this, and she didn't talk about this, but for the most part, you really, you did a good job, so well done. Thank you. <laughs> well, I miss. It is a lot. Um, well, a couple, one of the things, the riddle, I was worried that you were going to say the riddle, because 
I want to talk about the riddle a bunch. And also, you didn't really mention how she, like, hates the, like, the humans and the fairies hate each other. Oh, yes. And there's, like, no humans in the fairy world. Like, the wall is, like, very, like, fairies, I guess, can sometimes, like, cross into the human lands and, like, fuck with people. But for the most part, there's not really much, like, traffic between the worlds. And so, like, she doesn't really know anything about the fairies, like, besides from legends and stuff. And it's been 500 years since they've, like, lived in the same lands. And so she, like, doesn't really know anything about them, but she knows she hates them because there's this, like, ancestral beef because the humans used to be held as slaves by the fae. And so when she, like, gets essentially kidnapped by Tamlin because of the quote-unquote treaty, she is very very like i'm gonna escape i'm gonna get out of here except humans in this world and i guess i'm getting to like the magic and like the rules of the world yeah they have no they are they have glass bones and paper skin (laughs) compared to the fairies because the fairies have magic and even though their magic is like significantly diminished by amarantha's curse they still have like way more power than any human and so she like doesn't really have any defenses against them the only way she was able to kill a fairy in the first place was because of ashwood she was using ashwood which i guess is like like silver for a werewolf isn't it silver yeah yeah I think or no it's yeah it's silver no it's silver no it's garlic for vampires and ashwood yeah. i think and then silver for werewolves yeah, so the Ashwood is the only thing that can kill f- the Fae. So yeah. she doesn't have any of that, obviously, because they don't grow ash trees in the Fairyland. Why would you? And she also doesn't have any magic. So she, like, doesn't really have any way to escape. And there are all these monsters and stuff, like, living in the woods around the Spring Court. And she does not – she just, like, is this little puny woman – but she keeps being like, I'm going to escape. I have to get back to my horrible family. Which, yeah, her family, <laughs> the whole first part where she's, like, trying to save her family and stuff, I, we, we should get to the outline. But I do have <laughs> things to say that I haven't put in the outline about the beginning, like, the exposition with her family. Because I, I already don't buy it right at the start. So her family is, like, unbearable. Like, they (laughs) are literally, like... So, when you're poor, even when you used to be rich, I think you still understand the value of the dollar. Yeah. And so, basically what happens is Fair is, like, the only person in her family earning money for food or finding food. So she hunts in the woods, which no one else is really willing to do because they're too close to the border with Prithian, which is the fairyland. And so she, like, traps and gets furs in the winter, earns the family money, and then Elaine and Nesta, her older sisters, are like, well, aren't you going to buy me a new coat? Aren't you going to buy me a new pair of shoes? Like, Oh, my God. And it's like, I'm sorry. Like, just because you used to be rich doesn't mean you forgot what hungry feels like. Literally, this is exactly my beef. what hungry feels like. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, like, even even her middle sister, Elaine, who is, like, 
we're meant to see her as like sort of this like innocent, sweet, like big hearted um sister. She's very kind hearted. And yeah. she like grows flower gardens like at their little cottage. Even like after they lose their their wealth and stuff, they like, grow flowers. If you are a gardener, if that's your passion, your thing that you love, and you are starving, and you are starving, why are you growing a flower garden? That would never happen. Like, why would that ever happen? It just, the, it feels like the only reason why it's written that way is so that Feyre can be like, I'm the only one who is taking this seriously. Like, I'm the only one who can protect my family. And like, your situation can be dire without, like, everyone in your family being, like, completely useless. I just don't understand why it needs to be written that way. Like, it also kind of felt a little bit like ugly, ugly stepsisters vibes where, like, yeah. in Cinderella. She got too heavy-handed with the fairy tale metaphor. Like, she could have scaled it back and it would have been okay. Yeah. She would have understood. Exactly. Yeah. Like, Nesta, her oldest sister, later on in the book, it becomes clear that she, like, she has a very strong will. She's really tough. She can, like, protect the family and stuff. But, like, at the beginning, she's not doing any of that, which doesn't make sense to me. Because if they really were about to starve, could Nesta not have figured out something? Like, I don't know. It just seems really strange. And there is an entire, like, 500-page book about Nesta. But what I'll say is I do think when she has that conversation with Fair at the end, when Fair is like, you need to protect yourself, I'm going back to Prithian, Nesta, like, Fair is basically, why didn't you help me? And she was like, I, like, our father should have been the one helping us, and, like, I wanted to see how bad it could get before he did what he needed to do or what I thought he should have done. So I think that we're supposed to understand that her vindictiveness can be taken too far. But I think that we also at that point, because it is a first person narrative, are supposed to understand a little bit that like we are only seeing her point of view. Right. Yeah. It just, it immediately was like, Sure. I just had such a strong reaction to it being like, what? Is it not enough that she is like trying to like hunt for her family? Like, why does it have to, they have to be like so cartoonishly selfish? And like, even when they describe like how manicured and soft her sister's hands are compared to her hands, and there's so much first person narration about how Feyre loves to paint. But there's this part of her that notices color and shape and stuff that she has to put away because because she doesn't have the luxury of thinking about beautiful things like her sisters still do. Her sisters still care about beauty, but she can't because she is the only one who lives in the real world. And I'm like, that's exhausting. (laughs) Yeah. Like, I wish... You know how you were, I saw Oppenheimer yesterday and I was talking to Jess about it, and you were talking about how people kind of have brain worms about redemption arcs, where, like, no one is allowed to sit with, with, like, grief and, like, guilt 
and just accept that like you can try to grow from it even if you're still feeling the guilt no one understands that that like isn't a redemption arc it's just yeah. like being human i think that he feels sometimes- bad for building the bomb and that doesn't I- like absolve him from it <laughs> I think sometimes, especially authors who are writing for a younger audience, feel as if they have to make their protagonist so fairy Katniss Everdeen that they, like... And that's a bad example, because Suzanne Collins actually did a very good job. But, like, they have to make their character so specifically one way, so that... Their readers are like, we need to understand that she is tough and she is brave and she can, like, make the good choices. And, like, don't understand that, like, if you allow your tough, brave character softness, like, even at the beginning in that exposition, it makes your, like, your character has more depth. Like, your readers have the ability to understand that there is nuance to every single person's life. Right. So, like, write your characters like that. And she can, like, have help in the world and, like, still feel like her situation is dire. Like, it doesn't have to be, like, her single-handedly keeping her family alive. Like, starvation in winter is a real thing that is, like, threatening to people, like, in this sort of, like, world. Like, in this, like, pseudo-medieval type, like, village life. Like... A family can all be working hard to, like, feed themselves and it still be a really dire situation. Like, it doesn't have to be that she's the only one. And I get how there's, like, kind of, like, a little part about how she, like, made an, a vow to her dying mother that she would protect the family. But, like, I can, like, why wouldn't you have Elaine be, like, having a garden and Nesta be, like, reeling and dealing at the marketplace or like working as a a barmaid or something and she like hates it but she does what she has to do and like it's still not quite enough but like Farah is the one who's protecting them and like going out and doing the really hard thing which is hunting but her sisters are also doing their own part I don't know it just like feels like really unnecessary for them to just literally be sitting around being like, Farah, can you buy me a new coat? I need new boots. Like, I think that that's the issue with Sarah J. Moss writing for a range of ages. Like, I was about this, to say, by young, young readers, what do you ish, But like, as she moves into more like new adult with the rest of the series, like she isn't as heavy-handed with it and she doesn't make things seem so black and white when so much gray exists in the world like so i don't know i had this issue with her first throne of glass book too is it's very like who i'm i'm building a world and all of this stuff is happening and there's like a little bit of being a little lusty and like all of this stuff and then like the world building gets so huge and so interesting and you care about her characters so much. Why'd you write the first book like it was for a 12-year-old? <laughs> yeah. That's, well, I had Diego read one of the pages of this book or, like, a couple pages of it. And what he kept saying was, 
why does she write dialogue or like write an action and then spend like two sentences describing the way that the dialogue was said or the way that the action was done? Like, let me imagine, like, let me do some, some of the work was what he kept saying was like, why do I have, why am I just like sitting here passively like gobbling down all of these adverbs Oh, like, maybe just... this is where me being a skimmer comes in. <laughs> like, I think these books are fun because I am simply allowing that to wash over me. Yeah, which some <laughs> people do really like. Because I was talking to my friend Sarah, which, by the way, my roommate Sarah, her name is Sarah Jane Mockestead with two A's. So oh. M-A-A-K instead of M-A-A-S. But Sarah J is the same. And so Sarah J. Moss, Sarah J. Mock, strange. I spent a little bit of time trying to figure out whether Sarah J. Moss is Norwegian because Sarah J. Mockestead is. Like trying to figure out whether the and double A is like out? a Scandinavian thing. I could not find anything about her ethnic background. I searched so many different things. I searched Sarah J. Moss, ethnic background, Sarah J. Moss, cultural background, Sarah J. Moss, ethnicity, Sarah J. Moss, like. <laughs> I found out that her dad is Jewish, that she's from New York, and that she went to Hunter College. But other than that, I don't know anything about her. But anyway, I was talking to Sarah about this, and she loves to reread, like, series that she really liked as, like, a middle schooler, as, Uh like, a form of escape. So she's, like, reread Percy Jackson recently, and Narnia, and um harry potter and like all this so for her she was talking about how like reading fiction is a form of escape like she's not really trying to think that hard about the world or about like how humans behave or like um engaging with the tougher questions through fiction which is kind of something that i am more interested in and i think that's probably like kind of the english major non-english major divide is like In an English major, you often get taught, like, fiction is a tool for sort of, like, understanding ourselves and the world and not just a form of escape. But there's nothing wrong with it being a form of escape. I think it makes a lot of sense that it would be written in a way that makes it so that you are, like, just kind of, like, absorbing and, like, fully visualizing everything that's happening. That's why she's, like, describing things in such detail. But it does lend itself to being a lot like clunkier and cringier because she's like laying it on very thick with like I clinched my fist behind my back so that he couldn't see the effects that his words had on me like bro that's it's just it's a lot of stage direction and it's too much in my opinion (laughs) no that makes sense Let's see, have I explained the rules of the world at all? Um, I think we've kind of talked a little bit about, like, the Fae have lots of powers, the humans have none. The only thing that I think is very messy about the world building that she's doing here is that she creates this character in Amarantha who threw, like, one spell, like, manages to essentially leash the powers of all seven of the most powerful beings in Prithian. Yeah. And they're just like, we can't do anything about it. And they're like, so scared of her. 
And it's just like, are we sure? Like, I just, <laughs> I, and maybe, maybe I have not read enough, like, actual, like, deep intentional fantasy. I have, like, read a lot of the fluffy stuff, like, Akatar is. But, like, I find it interesting that she essentially is just like, and no one created any resistance ever at all. Because yeah. it's like, I don't know about that. If these people are so powerful, like, I am sure that there are people like Lesser Fae in Prithian who can turn invisible. Yeah. Like, that's probably helpful. Right. And they they also, like, keep talking about, like, our powers are so diminished. Like, this is just a shadow of our real power. Like, we still have this power, but we don't have as much. And then they do, like, really crazy things to the point where I'm like, okay, if you have the power to, like, very easily, like, heal someone's entire body, or, like, if you have the power to, like... I don't know. There's just a lot of things that they can do during the whole course of the book. And then they keep saying, this is just a shadow of my, like, real power. And I'm like, hmm. If that is true, if it is true that, like, this is just a fraction, like, a small fraction of what everyone in this book, like, is capable of doing, then, like you said, one, how were they conquered so easily? And two, like, why would she leave them any power? Like, what, if, if just a, like, a tiny shred of it is enough to be able to, like, do a lot of really, like, big stuff, why wouldn't you just not give them any power? I don't know. It just, like, none of her decisions really make sense. And also, like, she, quote unquote, loves Tamlin, and that's why he is sort of, like, the center of everything for her, like, the center of, her whole curse is all based on him. Mm-hmm. But then she, like, she doesn't, I don't know. It just doesn't seem like she has any, like, you never have any scenes of her really talking to him. We don't no, really get that a, much of, like, I don't I know. It just feels thing. very convenient. It feels very convenient to the story that, like, the person that is, like, in love with our main character is also the person who, like, holds the key to the entire realm in his hands because he is, like, so irresistible to this woman. Which, obviously, that's how books work, is that, like, it's unrealistic. But I kind of... It... I had trouble suspending my disbelief a little bit with things having to do with Amarantha, because I was always like, why would she do that? Why? It felt very flimsy to me. I think we were supposed to understand that, like, well, and here's the other thing. I'm going back on what I was going to say. If Amarantha is making her decisions on the explicit want to conquer the human lands because of what happened to her sister, yeah, then why 
are we to to understand like why why would she waste 50 years if she beat the high lords and she has beaten the rest of prithian into like if she can conquer all seven high lords she can conquer all the humans easily easily i feel like it would have like made more sense if she like needed tamlin for some reason like if he had power that she like couldn't really like overcome and she like needed him to be on her side and like there could have been some sort of like bargain or whatever or she like takes him captive and is like trying to turn him to her side or something but not like a romantic thing like I feel like it being a romantic thing is just lazy because it doesn't seem like she like actually wants him that badly because she has him as a captive and she doesn't do anything to him it's not like she like i don't know it just feels like a very like oh she grew up with tamlin and she has always desired him and she wants him for her own and she wants to have power over him but that doesn't like why should that be like paralyzing her entire like plan in every other sense so is she really that petty and are we meant to understand that she'll like jeopardize her position so much as to make a like whole like bargain with Farah that like completely jeopardizes everything she has all the power there's no reason for her to do that so here's what i think is interesting i think we spend this whole book from Farah's point of view with her coming to understand that, like, maybe the Fae aren't that bad and there is humanity with them. Because, like, plot twist, when you, like, have people with souls, they, like, all act the same. They, <laughs> they like, all have the same capacity for, like, love and hate and compassion and sympathy and, like, all of the emotions. The full spectrum of emotion belongs to everyone. It belongs to the Fae and to the humans. And so it's really interesting that we spend this whole book, like, having a lot of character development, specifically in the way that Farah understands the Fae as a society and as people. And then she goes under the mountain, and Amarantha is a caricature. Like, almost like a Shakespearean Midsummer Night's Dream caricature of what the Fae are. So, like... Yeah. We go from, like, growth and change and people with emotions to, like, hee-hee-hee-hee, solve my middles three, and you (laughs) can, you know? It, like, it kind of stinks. Yeah. It does stink. And maybe, uh, I don't know, it just kind of stinks. But also, another thing about the, like, power thing that I wrote down in the literal outline is that the rules of the world like sort of fray at the edges for me I feel like because there's so much talk about like deception with the fae so like initially she is led to believe through her legends and stuff that the fae can't lie which is interesting like that's an interesting little lie that the fae like planted in human lore to say fairies can't tell lies so that way humans always believe them they can't actually tell lies so haha but well, a lot a of fairies about decisions. that too where they're like well we can lie and then lucian is like well like little half truths so like yeah I wonder to the extent at which they can lie. Like, I don't know if they can, like, bald-faced lie. Like, 
the sky is blue and you look at it and you tell someone it's purple. Like, I don't know if they can do that. Yeah. But they can definitely whittle their way around the truth any which way they see fit. Right. But they can't deceive through, like, glamours, which is what I was going to say is, like, they have these, like, spells or whatever, like, this, like, magic that they can do where they can essentially, like, hide things or, like, make things appear that aren't there. And humans, like, have no defenses against these. So, like, they basically can't trust their senses. Like, there's a there's several times where she, like, hallucinates something or, like, it, she becomes aware that there's all these things around her that she hasn't been able to see because they've been disguised by these glamour spells. And when she's about to go under the mountain, which under the mountain is like capitalized under the mountain is basically the name of Amarantha's court. When she's going there, she's like sneaking in there and she's trying to free Tamlin, whatever. Alice, the main, like the only servant with a speaking part in the whole thing, (laughs) her favorite servant is like, don't trust your senses. They're your biggest weakness. Like the fae can trick you but which like if you can't trust your senses like what are you gonna trust like i don't i don't really get that but then later on in her little monologue she's also like listen to what you hear trust your ears and then pharah like when she's like going through her trials and stuff she's like and i've and i remembered what alice said and I was like, which part? Like, there, those are contradictory. Should she tr- trust her senses or should she not? And once you've established in the, like, magic world that her senses are not trustworthy and, like, anybody can sort of, like, play with them at any time, then it makes it – it's sort of like a like an immortality spell. Once you have that, then everything doesn't matter. Once you have, like, time-traveling spells, it doesn't matter. Like, anything could be – anything else. Do you know what I mean? Does that make sense? Yeah, that does make sense. It's very, like, like, at the end when Farah is, like, standing in front of Tamlin, holding the ash dagger, trying to figure out how to get out of it, and suddenly she's like, maybe I should trust my ears, because she, like, overheard all these conversations behind, like, open doors specifically so she would overhear them about Tamlin having a heart of stone. Like, Mm -hmm. like she is like, I can trust myself. It just, I feel like Sarah got a little heavy handed with trying to be like, and the fae, the tricksters, the, the un, the untruthful fae that she kind of like lost the plot on. Well, Things have to make sense. Right. Which is what I was talking to you about earlier about plot armor. Like, the plot armor in this book is insane. Which, plot armor is just, like, kind of like the deus ex machina thing of, like, any time that Feyre needs to be saved, she is saved in some way. Any time that, like, she really, really needs for the plot to go on, for something to be, like, like non-lethal... Or for someone to, like, have an interest in helping her or saving her. Or, like, she has to guess something and she guesses right. Like, the thing with Tamlin where, like, several times people have said, he has a heart of stone, he has a heart of stone. Like, for her to make the leap to be, like, that means that he has a literal heart of actual stone is an enormous 
logical leap. And the fact that it's right is just because that serves the plot. But it could just as easily be, oh, I overheard all of these conversations and they were using a bunch of idioms. And I happened to pick the right one that was being used literally. Like, I don't know. That just seems kind of bizarre. It seems like it would be much more, like, I don't know. I hesitate to say believable because I know it's fantasy, whatever. But I would have personally, like, liked it better if it had been more like her realizing what people meant by things that they that she hadn't understood before like not a literal idiom that's like heart of stone oh that means literally heart of stone i would have rather it been something where she was like oh it started to make sense all at once like they had been talking about this and this that I didn't understand before rather than her realizing that people were being literal when she thought they were being figurative. That just feels really like flimsy to me. I'm thinking about also like the people who are helping her all the time. Like, so I think something that would have made this book shorter and not made anything about the book worse is Amarantha's like, and while I'm keeping you in a cell, aside from when you have to do your trials, you're going to have to do menial chores that you can't actually do. So she gets like yeah. dragged to a hall and given a bucket of dirty water and the floor keeps getting dirtier as she like tries to clean it. And then Lucian, who is her friend from the spring court, like his mother comes and like, helps her clean the floor and is like, our debt is paid. Like, you protected my son. Our, our debt is paid. And then she gets thrown into Rysan's chamber to, like, dig away all these lentils in the in the grate. Essentially, Which is a any and Cinderella plot thing. needed to go. Oh, and <laughs> that's also in Cinderella, where they're like, if you dig all the beans out of the out of the fire, like, maybe you can go to the ball with us. So, yeah, like, that's so interesting. Like, useless. It didn't do anything for the plot. Like, yes, Lucian's mother, like, does come in later in other books, but, like, never really in person. Like, all we hmm. did was, like, find out that Lucian has a mom who loves her, which we already knew from earlier in the book. And all we did right. was have, like, Rysand flirt with Farah a little bit, and then, like, like, essentially just not do anything bad to her. Yeah. It seems like it was, like, a lot of, like, uh, just kind of, like, Easter eggs. Like, do you catch the reference? Look, another little reference to a fairy tale or a myth. Yeah. Which I do think is kind of cute. Like, I kind of like the retelling of myths, the retelling of fairy tales. Like, I genuinely do like that. And I do see how, like, flat characters and, like, kind of shallow world building, like, those things exist in myths and fairy tales and like characters who are like very one dimensionally bad and like black and white morality and all those sorts of things exist in those. And so maybe if I like think about it more as like an extension of that, then I'm a little more like gracious towards it. Again, I think it's probably not beneficial to read Tolstoy while you read this. (laughs) (laughs) And I also think for, like, the framework of a story, using a fairy tale is awesome. Like, if you have the framework of a story, then you get to add all the layers yourself, because there aren't that many layers to myths and fairy tales, unless it's, like, the fucking Iliad, 
Like, yeah. Like, Beauty and the Beast, when you look at it, no matter how many different versions that you read, it, at its, at its barest bones, is the same story. So, right. like, a recognizable story is really easy for readers to read, but yeah, she had too many recognizable stories. We didn't have to do Cinderella 2. Like, <laughs> um, yeah, I feel like a Cinderella should... story already exists. And Hillary Duff is and in it. And it's flawless. So, you don't need to do that. It's been done. It's been done. So many different times, so many different ways. I think we should talk about the one part of this book that you and I both really, really enjoyed, which was The Trials. Yes, I did like the trials. I thought the trials were cool. I think that, especially the first two, the last one, I was kind of, I feel like she could have done a little bit more with it in an interesting way. But the first two, no notes. I thought she did a really good job. Do you want to describe the first one? So the first one, one, I have a comment and it's that I'm reading the second book right now. And she changes the smell- spelling of worm from R-O- or W-O-R-M to W-Y-R-M. Um, but basically, Farah is brought to Amarantha's throne room and basically thrown into, um, like, basically the pit under Jabba the Hutt's palace. Except <laughs> instead of, like, a big hairy monster, there's a giant worm. And it, I literally, we had the most cursed outline until like 10 a.m. today because all it said was, forgot this was in first person, brutal, and shy halud. And those (laughs) were the two things it said in the outline. And I put shy halud because like that is how I'm picturing this worm, but on a smaller scale. It's like huge worm, big mouth full of teeth. Yeah. And that's how it's described. Covered in mud. Turns out it's not a, like, W-O-R-M worm. It's a W-Y-R-M worm, which is, like, a dragon without wings, basically. Mm Mm-hmm. But I like to picture it as a big worm because she's running through, essentially, like, a barren of, like, like, basically as if, like, there was, like, a bunch of moles digging through the ground. There's, like, a bunch of tunnels, and there's a big room full of bones, which is where the worm lives. And what she does is she finds the bone room, running away from the worm, because she figures out it's blind, which is another reason I think it's an actual worm. Um, Right. And then she, like, breaks a bunch of the bones over her legs so they're spiky, and she makes basically, like, a spike pit. And then she covers herself in worm shit so that the worm can't smell her, because that's how it was finding her. And then she, like, runs around until it finds her, and then she runs it back to the, like, big spike pit, and then she, like, jumps to a little spot she's made herself in the wall, and the worm falls over her and, like, falls onto all of the spikes she's made and dies. That's sick. I have a question about, I have a question about why she, um, like, rubbed the shit all over her before she lured it. Like, wouldn't it be easier to lure it if it didn't if it could smell her i think she wanted control over finding it so that she Mm. could get far enough away from it to stay ahead because at that point like i think did it break her arm like before 
she killed it, or did it kind of break her arm while she was killing it? She she broke she broke her arm when she jumped over oh, okay. the thing, and then she like in like kind of impaled it on one of the bones. I kind from of what think I understand that mostly she covered herself in worm shit because it made her seem really smart. <laughs> yeah, I kind of I feel like it. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. And it also makes, like, people start to realize, oh, she, like, knows what's up. She knows she's going to win once she started doing that, I feel like. Yeah. Because she figures out what his weakness is, what the worm's weakness is. And then she sets her little trap, and she wins. And the only person who bet on her was Rysand. I said Rysand in my head because Reese is what people call him for short, and it's R- H-Y-S, and I've heard that pronounced as Reese, I think, Reesand? I that's think just how I'm gonna pronounce it. it might it. be Reesand and Reese. I don't know. I, she really had um, naming people fantasy names disease, writing this book. Yes. I think Tamlin is a horrible name, by the way. Just <laughs> want to put that out there. But, Reese, I want to talk about him for a second, because... Yes. He is really important to the trials. Like, super important. Yes. Like, as so, the third act goes on, he is more important than Tamlin. Yes. Definitely. He is the third act boyfriend. <laughs> <laughs> so, he is the high court of the night court. The high yes. lord of the night court. Yes. And the night court is sort of, like, understood to be the sort of, like, land of darkness, obviously, and sort of, like, dark magic and stuff. And she meets him before she knows that that's who he is, and then she, like, discovers who he is, and he's this, like, beautiful, like, very darkly beautiful um, man who she, like, initially hates, obviously, because he is the, I believe they call him Amarantha's whore. So he is kind of, like, a consort of hers, like, a very close ally, and he's the one who, like, comes and delivers messages from her to the spring court. So she, like, knows who he is, and he is bad, obviously. But he kind of becomes, like, a tenuous ally of hers during her time under the mountain. And the first trial, she wins all by herself, but Reese bet on her. Reese was the only person in the entire court who bet on her to win. And then everybody else had, like, lost a bunch of money betting on her to lose within, like, a minute or, like, five minutes. But he bet that she was going to win. And then he comes and heals her arm, which she breaks during the trial. And um, in exchange, they make a deal where she will go to the night court with him for, like, a week out of every month. And he also, like, puts a, a tattoo all over her left arm. And there's, like, an eye in the middle of her palm. That she, like, can't tell whether he can, like, see out of or just, like, communicate with her. But he has the power to... He has a bunch of powers. But one of them is basically, like, mind stuff. Like, he can, like, see in other people's minds and, like, talk to them in there. So I don't think it is a spoiler to tell you that he is what they call... I think it's pronounced, like, a a daimatai. And, like, that is a a mind speaker, basically. Okay. Yeah. So, he essentially 
I mean, there's, like, a lot that goes on, and you had stuff in the outline about, like, the weird stuff that goes on, which I will not talk about. I'll just talk about his, like, trial situation, because he is helping her in the trial. So, like, his second trial is she has to solve a riddle and free herself and Lucien, um, who is her friend. And they have this these, like, massive, like, they initially look like chandeliers, but they're actually these, like, metal like fire things that are going to impale them or something mm-hmm. like kind of like the uh the pit and the pendulum vibes it's coming closer and closer and closer she has to solve this riddle and it's multiple choice and it's written it's a written question it's like the act but she can't, and she read. can't read and so and so she's like looking at it and she's like the the goose, the and Lucien is like answer the question and there's only three possible options and i literally took a picture of this page because i thought it was so ridiculous <laughs> because she chooses she chooses number two because <laughs> she says i chose number two two for me and tamlin <laughs> because one one is for solitary beings like Amarantha and the Ator, which is a monster. And three is for my three sisters, and that's too many mouths to feed. So two. Two for me and Tamlin. Which is so ridiculous. But also, in another sense, like, when you're answering a multiple choice question, and you have no idea. Like, I've probably answered math questions like that before. Like, I've been like, I like that number better. It's prettier. (laughs) Like, well, I know that my answer that I found is not on this list. Which one's the closest? Yeah. (laughs) hundred off. I'm gonna pick 25, because that's my number. In basketball. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I definitely have done that. So, like, far be it for me to judge. But because of the way that it's written, it's so ridiculous. It's like, two for me and Tamlin. Two, the perfect number for my perfect man and me. But. Whatever. The reason she doesn't choose two. Is because Reese is in her mind, like, burning her with the, like, like the tattooed eye on her hand when she goes to choose two and when she goes to choose one. But when she goes to choose three, there's no pain. And so she, like, recognizes from that that three is the answer. And so she clicks three, and then she's, like, past the trial. And she's, like, about to start crying, which I also really like this part because I feel like it, like, starts to show some sort of, like, interiority and, like, insecurity in her that's beyond just like i'm not a fae i'm a human me it's like a deep-seated insecurity that she has that she never learned to read because her family lost their fortune before she was able to learn to read so she like is really insecure about this and it like becomes highlighted and she's just like inside of herself sort of crumbling being like i only won that trial because of like luck and help and I'm this like illiterate human how can I ever outsmart outsmart Amarantha who outsmarted all the high lords of Prithian like I'll never be able to do this oh and so she's about to like break down like it's just all kind of crashing down on her and Reese is in her mind saying like stand up don't cry yet like don't let her see you cry just like turn around and walk out and he is like keeping her together kind of 
And then she gets back to her cell and she cries and he comes to see her and like talks to her about like why he helped her and sort of like explains how he's been held by Amarantha against his will and stuff. I don't know if it's the same part, but he does help her sort of to like keep it all together and like obviously saves her. And that is where you start to realize, oh, Reese is like very important. Yes, he is very important. I will say I reading these books for the first time, like reading this, I was literally like, which is so funny because I've read Sarah J. Moss before. I literally was like, why are they introducing a new boy? <laughs> like, that's annoying. Like, I don't know. I was kind of ex- expecting her to do it more on her own the first mm-hmm. time I read this. I think partially because in Throne of... Which is so silly of me because, like, her characters don't do things on their own. Like, the reason that people like her books is there are so many fleshed out just enough characters for people to latch on to and to, like, be attached to. Um, Mm -hmm. So, I will say, I think that Resand, like in this book, net positive. Yeah, However, I think that this book and her other books, and we can kind of, like, wiggle this into, like, The Perfect Man in Too Many Hands kind of together. I think that Sarah J. Moss is really strange about specifically power dynamics in sex. And Mm -hmm. I think that a lot of things we're supposed to just, like, apologize for or just, like, forget about because it was, like, necessary or because she's human and he's fae. So, like, Resand, as part of the deal, starts, like, bringing her to dinner every night and giving her, like, fairy wine. And, like, one of the big things that goes with, like, Lots of fae myths is you are not supposed to drink the wine or eat the food from a fairy court. Because yeah. essentially, Fera is being roofied every night. So he yeah. dresses her up in this really slutty dress. It's like basically like, it's basically there's like two bands across her boobs all the way down to her hips. And then there's like a belt. And then the like bands just like keep going. Her like ass is basically entirely bare. Like, she's, like, kind of covered up front. And, like, it's, we're supposed to understand that it's, like, gossamer see-through fabric. Which, like, yeah, I I just, like, don't think that it had to be see-through. I think it probably <laughs> had to be, like, kind of, kind of very slutty just because we were supposed to, like, oh, Resand is taking advantage of her and, like, and then... He gives her a glass of Fay wine every night, and she does not remember what she does all night. She gets, like, images yeah. of her, like, dancing, and it's just, like, I think if you were a woman who, like, had been roofied, like, this would be a very, very, like, triggering way to read it. Yeah. But instead, like, it becomes, like, a drug to her, and she's like, well... Now I can basically, like, escape into oblivion. But it's just, it's just messy. She does it in a really messy way, in a way that, like, kind of leaves a sour taste in my mouth. And she's also covered in black ink. And every day she wakes up with the black ink on her and she sees hand prints just, like, just on her, like, waist and ribcage, basically. Which 
We later come to understand after she's, like, freed everyone from the trial and everything else. And, like, Rhysand basically just, like, sneaks into her room and is, like, here's why I did all this. And, like, I had to, like, cover you in the ink so that Tamlin would, like, he's so possessive. So he would, like, only see that you were, like, touched on the waist and, like, that, like, nothing else had happened to you. And when she is, like, stupid one night and her and Tamlin, like, sneak away... Just, like, for, like, a minute or two. Ridiculous. Like, Resand, like, comes in and is, like, isn't even, like, keeping his Resand persona. Barely. He's literally just, like, you guys are the stupidest people I've ever fucking met. Like, I cannot (laughs) believe you did this. And then he, like, makes Tamlin leave and is basically, like, I'm sorry about this. And it's almost like when you're an undercover cop and your partner and you, like, have to kiss. Like... You know, that is kind that of what happened an undercover cop. <laughs> I don't know. Like, that happens in every cop show where the, like, the, right. like, very, like, heteronormative couple that, like, has to go on a stakeout together and they're, like, fake partners, like, fake romantic yeah. partners and then have to kiss. Right. Like, that is kind of what it right. felt like. Right. Yes. I think that he is much smarter than either Feyre or Tamlin. <laughs> yes. And He's like, Jesus like, Christ, we all need to get out of here. Like, yeah. And like, uh, I just think that that was so dumb. So Tamlin, we haven't really talked very much about the sex in this book, but Tamlin is such, oh my God. I just, I can't even like, I understand that he is written to be like really sexy. Like, I get that it's, like, a Beauty and the Beast, like, he's such an, he has such animalistic hunger for her. But he growls so much, and he, like, bites her, and I just, I cannot get into it at all. But they have so much, like, sexual tension for most of this book. And they finally do have sex, like, once, right? They have sex once. But then they, like, want to have sex, the second time that they ever want to have sex is at Amarantha's court when, like, nothing is fine. Like, it's not the time at all. There was not really a need for them to do that. I Besides, I feel like it was a way that Sarah J. Moss was able to have recent also have to kiss her. Like, I feel like that was kind of, like, intentionally trying. And maybe, like, I haven't read the next books, and I'm going to make some predictions at the end of this episode, but... I feel like there was kind of an effort to make there be almost like a, like a alternative ship with Reese. And so he has to like kiss her at the end, you know? And even though she's not really like interested in it, I feel like why else would you write that part into it? Because Tamlin has not been able to talk to her the entire time. Like they have not interacted at all. He's been completely like face blank not reacting to anything whatsoever and then suddenly he decides that it's worth the risk to go off like sneak off and have sex with her that makes no sense at all and if we're meant to believe that he has been this entire time like because amarantha is so dangerous being completely like emptying himself of anything just like completely dissociated then what changes? Like, there's nothing that changes except for it is convenient for Reese to save them from that. Right? 
Yeah. Like, why I else agree. would he do that? I agree. It it just feels... I don't know. I think that Sergey Moss has a little bit of a... A little bit of a, of a lust problem. Like, I think her <laughs> books... I think her Repent. books are... No, 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 no. I think her be- <laughs> books are better when people are pining than when they've had sex. Hmm. Interesting. Like, the beginning part of the book, like, yeah, he's growling a lot. But, like, he's growling a lot in, like, normal conversations. Which, like, to be fair, in Disney's Beauty and the Beast, like, the Beast does that a lot. Where he's, like, yeah. walking around the castle, and then she, like, vexes him a little bit, and he's, like, and then leaves. <laughs> like, so, like, some of the growling, I will forgive some of the growling. I will not forgive 95% of the sexual growling. Um. <laughs> In the outline, I wrote, in all caps, can, can can Tamlin stop growling, please? And Tuck just wrote, wait until people start roaring. <laughs> Christ. Oh, my God. Um, so, I think Too Many Hands, uh, for this week could also be titled, Is the Bite Hot, or Is It Just a Little Bit Too Animalistic for Comfort? I'm leaning too animalistic for comfort. Like, I can't, I cannot get on this train. Oh my god, this is so fun. This is so fun that you have never read a smutty book before, and you've started in on fairy porn. Which is like... (laughs) So, yeah. My main question for Sarah J. Moss, and any time I read a Sarah J. Moss book, is, like, Farrah is literally, like, 19 years old. She's 19. Yeah. And, like, all of the men in all of her books are, like, because all of her people, like, start human. And then, like, become fae. Or, like, are, like, half fae. Oh, yeah, all of them start human and then fall in love with, like, a 500-year-old man and through, like, some sort of series of events. Oh, you mean, you mean the, the characters. I thought you meant every fae in the book. No, 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 no. I mean, her female protagonist is always literally 400 years or more younger than the man she falls in love with. But don't worry, he looks like he's 30. Right. And... It just makes him good at sex and good at giving advice. Like, (laughs) it doesn't make him, like, a predator. Right. Which, there are some times in this book where she specifically says, like, he gave me a predatory glance. And we're meant to see that as hot. Did you notice that? Yeah. Because he's, like, the beast. Yeah. Well, okay. Sarah and I were talking about... Recently, we were talking, we both have nieces and nephews. We were talking about how, um, the, like, the sexualization of children's clothes and, like, how gendered they are, even when, like, obviously toddlers don't have any difference in, like, the size that they are, like, boys and girls. Like, there's no reason for them to have, like, girls' shorts who are way, like, shorter and, like, smaller than boy shorts. Ew, that's gross. But she was saying how there's been, like, a bunch of studies done, or a bunch, there's been studies done about how in, like, boys' clothes, overwhelmingly, if there's an animal on it, it's a predator. And overwhelmingly, for girls' clothes, it's prey. What? Like, birds. And, like, rabbits. 
Think about it. Oh Isn't my that crazy? god. That's crazy. Yeah. Nuts. Yeah. And so I was thinking about that as I was reading this and there kept being like all this stuff about how like Feyre has no power and like she's always in the clutches of someone who can like fuck her up even if they don't want to. They still could. And then he like is he like has his claws out during sex but he's being so gentle and all like I put something in the outline about like I don't feel like there was ever a mention of him putting his claws away before he started fingering her. So it's, does he have claws and pussy? But I guess you're right that, that she, he probably did retract them because we would be, we would know if he didn't. But still, like he is still his beast self in some ways when they are having sex. And she is a human with glass bones and paper skin. It's very Bella and, that, and Edward. Y- yeah, it like freaks me out. Because, of course, like, in heterosexual sex, like, yes, most women are, like, physically, like, smaller and less powerful than men. But not, like, with a huge gap, usually. Like, not with a gap that's as huge as, like, a fae and a human. Yeah. And even if he doesn't want to hurt her, it just, there's, like, it feels like the way that it's written, it almost seems like, she is playing on this idea of like the fact that he could hurt her is sexy. Like the fact that he could hurt her and doesn't. Yeah. Which like some people are like into like different power dynamics. I, so what I put is like, I, and I wrote it out in the outline because I wanted to figure out my thoughts. I think that people want to read about, like, non-human but, like, humanoid smut because they want to read about people who are, like, inherently hotter and inherently stronger and who, like, don't have a refractory period, like, who can just go all night because they think (laughs) that that is, like, hot. And so, like, that is why people like the growling and like the roaring and like the claws in the hands is because, like, this, like, essentially perfect, perfect specimen of a man, like, wants this simple human woman and is, like, basically giving her the best night of her life. Like, right. I think that's kind of what it is. Yeah. Which, there's also, it is weird to me that he wants this simple human woman. Like, well, he's, like, she's, like, the first person to, like, vaguely show him kindness maybe ever. Like, we are gonna find out a lot more about Ty- Tamlin and his upbringing. And, like, a lot more about a lot of the High Lord's upbringings in the second book. Let me speak. Um, I can't wait. <laughs> speak away. So, like I said, when I had Diego read like a page or two of this it's when they're first having sex and his i don't remember exactly what his response was besides the like reaction to the adverbs but he literally closed the book and was like i i cannot i cannot read this and kind of like almost i don't know it seemed like he was like really considering what is female sexuality if this is like the the literary outpouring of like the female sexual desire like what <laughs> i just mean, i don't know 
kind of had a moment about it, which I thought was funny. And maybe I'm reading into what he was actually thinking, but he mostly did talk about, like, I feel like she is not letting me do any imagining on my own. Yeah. I think... Like, let me cook. So I think the thing about smut and the way that it's written is, like, it's written for women. And so, like, I think mostly the reason that lots of smut is good is because, like, women are receiving pleasure. Like, and, like, getting a lot out of it. And I think that in, like, stereotypical porn, like, like, lesbian porn is for men. Like, you know, like, most, most produced video porn is made for the male gaze. So, like, I don't know. I, like, I don't think that the Akatar smut is for everyone, but I do think that, like, a lot of the things that are happening in it, even if the, the adverbs are different and the adjectives are different, like, is, like, the bones of it are what, like, a lot of the bones of smut are. Yeah. And I think the, the, well, I won't say that. Never mind. My question about smut okay. is, when you are reading a book that has a lot of smut in it, and you're just, like, carrying on, you're concerned with the plot, you're like, what's going to happen with this? She's concerned about her relationship with her father and her sisters. And then there's a sex scene, and you don't feel like reading a sex scene. What do you do? Like, oh, I skim. What do you do? Like, if so, I don't So you really- just kind of, like... If I don't really want to read it, I just kind of skim over it. Like, okay. I'm I'm in it for the pining a lot of the time. Mm. I'm not, yeah, like, that makes sense. really in it for the, like, actual, like, like, I think that it's, like, sexy when people want each other. And so, mm. like, sometimes once they've, like, skipped over the wanting and it's just, like, straight to sex, I'm like, eh. Eh. Like, where's the pining? <laughs> like, I would, like, much rather, like, read about people, like, staring at each other from across the room and, like, not being able to handle it than, like, the actual act two pages later. That is so interesting. Actually. I don't know. Maybe I'm really, like, telling on myself there. No, I... Th- well, <laughs> Because I'm just, like, not used to reading... Like... In the books that I typically read, like, when there is sex, usually there's sort of, like, like, it's very laden with meaning for the, like, characters and stuff. And so, like, if you skip over it or, like, skim over it, you kind of, like, miss some stuff about, like, I don't know. Like, I'm thinking about Elena Ferrante, which is my favorite author. She, like, has a lot of relationships between men and women in her books in which there is sometimes sex. But usually the sex is not necessarily meant to be good. Like, it's not meant to be, like, about female pleasure or, like, meant to be, like, pleasurable to read necessarily. It's more Mm -hmm. about the relationship between the two people. And so you can't really, like, skim over it if you're like, I'm not really feeling like reading about sex. But because you, like, might miss some stuff that's important. But if you kind of, like, are understanding that the book is sort of, like, written more with the audience in mind in, like, a more direct way, where you're like, this is, like, audience service. Yeah. 
in a way, like kind of the way that fan fiction sort of is, then there's not as much of a like pressure to have to like read every line and read into it. And so you can kind of choose your own adventure, whether you're going to like really get in there. That makes a lot of sense. And that I think is not how I'm used to reading. And now I will find it easier to get through the next couple of books because I think that applies not just to the smutty scenes, but everything. Like, if you just, like, are kind of letting it wash over you, I think I just need to be taught how to read these books. And you're teaching me how to read them, and I appreciate that. Because I got trained to read deeply, and I keep being like, oh, my God. (laughs) Oh, it's so good. You will never read a Colleen Hooper book. Because, like, even I, skimming, it's not possible to let it wash over you. <laughs> Which might oh, be, like, the biggest indictment I can give an author. Yeah. You can't even skim that shit. Yeah. No. Uh, I really meant what I said about Colleen Hoover, which was that every single one of her books could have been, like, maybe a 20k fanfic. Tops. Can I also say that I think... This is one of the dumbest main characters that I've ever read. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. She's so dumb. She, when Tamlin is trying to send her home, which you were, you were saying how like she said she missed her family and he like offered to send her home. She like doesn't want to go home though. He's like making her go home because she's in danger and he knows that Amarantha is going to kill her and she doesn't know why and so she just keeps being like i don't want to go i don't want to go and he keeps saying it's not safe for you it's not safe for you and then she has this stupid fucking line where she's like you just don't want me why because i've got too many thorns and then she just starts talking about how she's like sour and hostile and icy and like he just doesn't want her and i'm like you dumb fucking bitch (laughs) (laughs) he's saying that he loves you and he wants to protect you and like that you are so weak in this world which is obvious from literally everything else like she cannot protect herself one bit and he's like she's like why you don't want me because i'm so mean to you (laughs) it is so antithetical to her character of like I I think that it's really frustrating to for her to start the book so self-sufficient and want to leave and, like, trying to break out of his estate. And then she immediately is like, well, why don't you want me here? And I don't know if she has, like, some abandonment issues because her, like, family didn't really care about her. But I don't think that Sarah J. Moss is thinking that hard about Fair's familial trauma. Like... Right. I think she's just, like, trying to write a love story, and it's, like, really frustrating that she goes from, like, smart enough to be self-sufficient and, like, take care of her family, even if they're, like, really barely subsisting, to, like, then also being, like, what do you mean you want me to leave even though you're telling me I'm in danger? Like, it just, like, (laughs) it doesn't really match up. Yeah. And, like, she's not able to figure out, like, anything on her own in this book. Everything is, like, told to her by someone else. Like, every, yeah. besides the heart of the heart of stone thing at the end, which is so dumb. But, like, everything else is always told to her, except the riddle, which I went and looked up because I want to read it and say how dumb I think it is. Okay, go for it. So, 
Amarantha is like, if you solve this riddle, I'll release you immediately and the curse will be broken. Like, she really makes it so that, like, everything hinges on this riddle. And when I read it, I immediately knew the answer. So here is what it says. It says, there are those who seek me a lifetime, but but we never meet. And those I kiss, but who trample me under ungrateful feet. At times I seem to favor the clever and the fair, but I bless all those who are brave enough to dare. By large, my ministrations are soft-handed and sweet, but scorned, I become a difficult beast to defeat. For though each of my strikes lands a powerful blow, when I kill, I do it slow. And Farah's like, is it an illness? Is it typhoid? (laughs) She's, is it a monster? Which, like, no riddle ever is, like, a thing in the concrete world. Like, it's always a figurative thing. And so the fact that she's like, maybe it's typhoid, maybe it's a wolf, is so dumb. And then she spends the rest of the trials, like, thinking, like, I wonder what it is, I wonder what it is. And then it turns out that it's love. And she figures it out right at the very end and then gets her spine snapped. But, like, I just, I don't know. I feel, maybe I'm being mean, because you put in the outline that you didn't, what what did you say in the outline about Um, What I put in the outline, and I think this should just be telling you, like, how, one, how I am as a reader, and also, just, like, I'm not very good at riddles. Like, <laughs> personally, if I was offered some sort of, like, Rumpelstiltskin problem, I would be in a lot of trouble. I would have to give up my firstborn. Uh, but <laughs> I put that, um, I, reading the riddle for the first time, like, felt like I did when I read Encyclopedia Brown, Boy Detective, which are these, like, little mysteries. I don't know if you read them when you were a kid. My mom. Yeah, I did. Yeah. Uh, where, like, it's a little, like, ten-page mystery, and then you go to the back of the book and you, like, read the paragraph about how to solve the riddle. Yes. And, like, how Encyclopedia did it. And I literally would, like, read the mystery, be like, I don't know, go read the back <laughs> of the book, and then go back and reread the mystery. And I'd be like, oh, my God. Like. That's crazy. That's crazy. Like, I can't believe <laughs> that. Now I see it. And, like, after, like, reading the riddle. And then getting the answer at the end and then rereading the book, I'm like, oh, yeah, the answer's love. That, like, makes so much sense. But also, I did skim the riddle the first time because I was like, yeah, I'm not very good at riddles. I'll just, like, find out when Farrah finds <laughs> out. Yeah, that's fair. I think that I, well, Diego hates watching movies that have, like, twists and mysteries and stuff with Boo. me because I always want I always want to answer them <laughs> and like he has banned me from making predictions because I love to make a prediction or I'll like figure out the the plot twist and then I'll be like I think that she actually is she, it's the same person they're actually the same person and then he gets so so mad which is fair because that is annoying and I do recognize that it is like irritating to be like it's a, it's, the riddle is obvious. Me, me, me. Like that, I realize that I'm being yeah. really annoying. I'm sorry. But I think I just want, I don't know, I want the book to be smarter. No, <laughs> I, just I feel get like, that. 
the answer being love feels like like Duh. you could like not you could like not listen to the riddle. You could like plug your ears through the riddle and then guess love and you might be right. Like <laughs> You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Okay. It could have uh anyway, I'm sorry. I, I think that I am coming across in a very snobbish way and I want to No, no, take no. I back. don't <laughs> think you are. I'm cutting you off because we're an hour and a half in. Fair enough. And we need to we need to keep going. I want you to give your predictions for book two. Okay. And then we can do Goodreads. I feel like we've talked about Tamlin enough. Okay. So, my predictions. First of all, you gave me a big hint in the outline where you said there's... Nothing SJM loves to do more than have a book two big changing event. I'm avoiding the word plot twist. And then you said, stay with the High Lord is what the surreal said. There's seven High Lords. Pretend I put the side eye emoji in here. Okay. So she has to stay with Reese instead of Tamlin, clearly. And Was he that your like guess before I put the surreal's quote in the outline? My guess was going to be... That the, like, the Court of Mist and Fury, that's what it's called, right? The mm-hmm. second one? My prediction is that that is the Night Court and that she's going to have to spend a lot of time there because of Reese. And it's going to be set at the Night Court and that's going to be a big thing. The relationship between her and him will develop and it will turn into a, like, love triangle of sorts. And she will get, like, more entwined with the internal politics of, like, the seven courts, because now there's not, like, a high, high lady. What was she called? Being, like, she, over everybody else? I, she it doesn't called matter. herself the high lady of Prithian, but, like, there had never, it was just seven high lords previously. Like, no okay. big king. Right. So now that there's, again, no big king, that means that you have kind of, like, the relationships between each of the courts become more interesting because none of them are, like, in charge. And so some of them might still, but also you have the King of Highburn, which the Amarantha was, like, sort of like a lieutenant of, like a rogue lieutenant of. So I think that they're going to be, like, doing some sort of thing to try and, like, keep the King of Highburn at bay, and she's going to have to be allied with Reese, and she's going to do sort of a similar thing where she, like, is with him, and she initially is like, I hate you. And then he's going to be like, your hair looks nice. <laughs> and then they're going <laughs> to, they're going to, he's going to save her from some monster, and then they're going to, like, pine after each other, and then she's not going to know what to do because she has the creature of light and springtime, which is Tamlin, and the creature of night and darkness and talons and claws and wings. Who is Reese? I think that's going to happen. That's my prediction. I will say nothing else. Okay. Well. Okay. I'll start soon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Let me know if you need me to send you the EPUB I stole. I uh, don't steal anymore. Remember? Oh. Well, is it stealing if I just Googled a Court of Mist and Fury free PDF? And it's just on there? Yeah, it's like the first link wow. you click on. Oh my god, that's crazy. It's, it's crazy. Um, There's 
A lot of girlies who need to get their rocks off, huh? <laughs> Is there more sex in this one? This next one? Yeah. Hmm. Well, is there screeching because he's a bird? Me, <laughs> a bat. A, he's a bat? Do bats yeah. have talons? More of a bat than a bird. Bats don't have, do bats His have talons? His wings are bat-like. Right. I need Here, to look up bat I'll hands. Send you, no, I'm just going to send you some fan art. Oh my god, I'm looking at pictures of bats. Ew. <clears throat> okay, here. I found one. Oh wait, that's TikTok. She's, she's gonna get rabies from him. That's my oh prediction. My God. <laughs> here, let me. Here, I'm just gonna send this in. Um, the um <laughs> Discord. In the Discord, everyone's gonna be like, everyone's gonna be like, "Tuck." Oh wait, no, I can send it just in the recording channel. Hold on. Hold on. So, we literally have a bat and, like, like, we have someone with bat wings and we have someone who's, like, basically, like, a wolf beast man. So, yeah. everything is Twilight. Yeah. Basically. And also, now she's a high fae. So, it's like, she's immortal now. Oh, my God. Literally, <laughs> everything is Twilight. <laughs> Stephanie Meyer, her power. Throne of Glass wiki. Oh, okay. Let me look. (laughs) Okay, the Bat Boys. Yeah, this is not interesting for our for our fans. There Um, are more than one. Spoiler. There's more than one of him. Spoiler. Okay. Um. Well, yeah. Spoiler. But there's three. I want to. I want to talk about this for the fans just very briefly. There's three of them. One of them has a sword. Another one has a little dagger, and they all have the, like, tattoos. And then the the <laughs> comments are, ooh, so smexy. <laughs> beautiful. Purely beautiful. Um, Like, okay emoji. Okay emoji. I love the detail and the bat boys. Ooh, so smexy. Ilarian e- babies. What is Ilarian? Is that? Oh, the- you don't know about that yet. Why are they so beautiful? Heart eye emoji. Scrump diddly issues. No! <laughs> no, it's a scrump diddly issues. Fuck, dude. Oh my god. <laughs> um. Oh my god. I like, and that's the thing. This is why I'm like really glad that I'm not super on Tumblr or super on, like, anywhere that this, like, fandom, like, legitimately exists is because, like, something about fandom gives me, like, a big sense of discomfort. And especially, like, like, also something that I think is very interesting about the Sarah J. Moss fandom is all of her characters are white and, like, all of the fanfic is, like, very, or, like, fan art is very much so I have drawn the same man three times and they all have the same features and they're all white and have long hair and can put it in a bun and have the same body and it's like okay okay Okay. (laughs) like i am getting that sense just from these two pieces of fan art that you have blessed me with (laughs) gave you a little present 
Also, one more thing. If Tamlin's heart is stone, then how does he get hard? Oh, like, how does he have blood? This yeah. is This is very, if Edward's made of stone, is he always hard? Or do, is, does he just, like, like, how does his... How does his dick inflate? How does it do it? It turns out that this genre is plagued by the same questions over and over and over, which is why do they want this mortal girl and how do they get hard? (laughs) Yeah. Those are the two questions you always have to answer. I am once again asking, how do you get hard? (laughs) Please explain it to us. Um, Also, I need, I'm going to ban these from my classroom. I have so many students who have copies of these that have, like, color-coded tabs. No! And they'll be like, this one is for funny. This one's for a fight scene. This one's for beautiful imagery. And I'm like, slay using the word imagery. And then this one is for, um, um, (laughs) scenes that I like. And I'm like, teacher friends recommend these to you yes which is also i i cannot believe that english teachers around the globe and by that i mean in the several high schools that i have friends who are english teachers are reading these and recommending them and also talking to their students about them because oh oh what bad uh yeah, no. Like yeah. I, can you imagine your your English teacher being like, "And I love Twilight." Like that would be the equivalent for our era. I feel like these are a lot smuttier than Twilight. Like the right. smuttiest part That's of Twilight true. is she like is naked and then he breaks a headboard, and those are like two separate events, like se- like separated by a like a chapter break. Hmm. Like yeah, yeah. Even more um, so. So, yeah, this is worse. I think this is like remarkably worse to be recommending to your students. Insane, insane. So I will never be revealing to my students that I have read these, and I'll just be like, "So, are you enjoying your book? What do you like about the writing style? <coughs> do you want to read um, um, where the red fern grows?" <laughs> <laughs> okay. We need to do Goodreads, and then, once again, I think the first, I think Jess and I are going to have to split this pod into, into two pieces. Oh, um, well. We love to chat. We are girlies who can gab. And that is true. And that is true. I don't true. even think we got that off topic. Like, I really feel yeah. like we were much more off topic talking about Sally Rooney. Well, there's a lot to say about this. There's a lot of world. There, It's long. Yes. Okay, my, my four and a half star review says, Tamlin is going to set your loins aflame. Phew! My cheeks are still Ew. flushed. And all I put is, um, bestiality girlies really showing their hands here. Mm. Mm-hmm. So true. Oh, also, I was just reading about on this on Goodreads, but um, Tamlin does, like, really 
Well, we can talk about that when we talk about Perfect Man stuff later at CompCon. Just, like, put a pin in Cal and Mai. We need to talk about Cal and Mai. We didn't talk about it. We can talk about it when we do CompCon, okay? Okay. Because I'm sure that we're going to end up comparing several men. <clears throat> Rita and Tamlin. <laughs> okay. The battle yeah. of the, the wings and the fur. A battle of wings and fur. That could be the last book. A, a bowl of mac and cheese. A bowl of mac and cheese. <laughs> I still think that's so funny. Anyway, my only Goodreads one that I wanted to read is a five-star review that just says, Reese really said I could be a better boyfriend than him, which is my summary of the last act. Yeah. The last act, Reese is really like, hey. Have either of you thought about ever thinking with your your brain? Literally. Have you thought about using your brain? And she's like, I don't have a brain. I can't read. I'm a human. <laughs> she gets less exhausting. Well, she's not a human anymore, so now she doesn't have to talk about being a, a puny human the whole time. No. No, she doesn't. Instead, she has to talk about how she's a killer oh she's gonna be feel really guilty about that for like the whole book i don't remember if it's the whole book but and reese is gonna help her with her guilt oh you got it i'm i'm excited i yeah i can tell you mean it too (laughs) okay let's see oh this has been all my friends are english majors follow us on instagram at english majors pod uh, send us an email at EnglishMajorsPod at gmail.com. Jess and I will be back next week talking about A Court of Mist and Fury. And honestly, we're probably going to talk for another two hours. So if you want six hours of ACOTAR content, damn, have you come to the right place. Okay, bye! So bye!